Hey guys, this is Jake. Today we had an interview with Brandon Robertson. We got to cover a bunch of different topics. Really excited about this episode. If you find this content interesting, you can follow him at his website, brandonrobertson.com, or his Instagram, at brandonrobertson, or his Twitter account, at brandonjr. Hope you like what you hear today. Welcome to the I Think You're Wrong podcast. I'm Jake Lichtel. And I'm Sebastian Waldron. Today, our guest is Brandon Robertson. He's the lead pastor of Mission Gathering in San Diego. He's a lead Christian activist and a graduate of the ILIF School of Theology. Brandon, welcome. Thanks so much. It's so good to be here. It's great to have you. Um, so I've followed you for a few years now, so we're really excited to have you on. Um, I want to start just by asking you a little bit about your childhood and background. You grew up in D.C.? Yeah, just outside of D.C. and Maryland. Okay. And I know you grew up um, in an evangelical church. That's right. I started off in a fundamentalist Baptist context and then uh, went to more mainstream evangelicalism after that. Okay, okay. But um, you also mentioned you grew up in a really diverse uh, area. Yeah. Okay. And so, so... before we get into your Christian upbringing, how did the diversity um, of the region that you grew up in uh, shape you? Well, essentially, I mean, because I didn't grow up in a Christian family, um, I never had um, that sense that I just needed to stick with one version of truth or one religious or spiritual path, even as a fundamentalist Baptist when I was 12, when I became a Christian. even though I believed in the exclusivity of salvation in Christ and all of those good things, I still had this curiosity in me. And I grew up in an environment where at school I had friends who were Muslim and Mormon and Hindu and mm-hmm. Wiccan and pagan. And so all of these people were around me. You as much Wiccan, as, huh? Yeah. <laughs> High school was a fun time. Uh, I had quite a few Wiccan and pagan friends. And... I I had my religious teaching that told me these people were evil and wrong, but I also knew them as my friends and I knew that they weren't evil and that they were pretty good people. So um, just very early on being in an environment that was so diverse as the suburbs of Washington DC are, Mm -hmm. um, it really, I think, formed me and set me on the trajectory to put me where I am today, being more progressive, even though I didn't know that was the direction I was heading at the time. Yeah, um, yeah, I think you, you do think that some of those early experiences also lent to some of your theology later on of, of inclusivity. I was just reading your book, uh, The Gospel of Inclusion. I think this is your newest one, correct? Yeah, totally. It, it, was, it's, it was an incredible work. I'm going to plug it on Thanks. the podcast today because everyone should read it. I think it, it was, it really, I think, helped map out some of the ways I was thinking about some of these questions. So really helpful. But do you think some of your early experiences... Uh, around some of those inclusive spaces help push that that theological outlook later on in life? Totally, because again, once I became a fundamentalist Baptist uh, and I was going to high school, I was telling my friends, I was the annoying kid who was literally telling people they were going to hell because they didn't believe what I believed or didn't go to my church. And while I was saying that and believing it earnestly, something within me just knew that wasn't real, let it feel right. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
in fact, I really admired, I remember in particular, I had a Mormon friend and I had a Muslim friend and I admired their faith so much, um, mm -hmm. almost more than anyone in my own faith community. And so out of one side of my mouth, I was saying, you're going to burn in hell because you don't believe in the exclusivity of Christ. Mm -hmm. On the other side, I was going home and reading the Quran and looking up mm -hmm. the Book of Mormon mm -hmm. and meeting with missionaries because I was actually compelled by something. Mm -hmm. And so, I, and again, I think that, that developmentally not having a family that made me a certain kind of Christian or adhere to certain religion gave me the gift of curiosity from a young age that I, mm -hmm. again, I do think has been so central to my theology and my spiritual practice and teaching today is essentially I tell people we're all trying to talk about God, which is the one thing we can't be sure about. It's bigger than all of us. And mm -hmm. so we just have to take a posture of humility, awe, and wonder when we think about God. And I think that comes from those very early experiences. Absolutely. So, so Brendan in high school was like little now. So your family wasn't Christian? No. I mean, um, and my parents are fine with me calling them this. Everybody always is a little shocked. But I would describe them as rednecky conservative. Um, and <laughs> I know those are sometimes, but it, it's very well, we, I grew up in a trailer park in a small town outside of D.C. called Elkridge. Um, and, and it was just a very, what, that, what those words bring to your mind is the kind of environment I grew up in. So okay. there was a conservative social bent, and we all believed in God. We all believed in Christianity, like in a very cultural sense. But there was never any deep understanding of faith, and nobody went to church. And sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. I kind of feel the same way. My parents uh, sent me to Catholic school, um, but they weren't Catholic themselves. And I converted when I was nine, kind of similar to you when you were 12. So can you talk a little bit about that conversion process, what led you to uh, a particularly conservative brand of Christianity? Totally. So I grew up, um, my dad was an abusive alcoholic. Um, I was surrounded by a community that was just plagued with a lot of the issues that lower class um, Americans all face, which is not a lot of income. So a lot of kids were into drugs and gangs and violence. And that was the community I grew up in. And I started believing at a very young age that my life had no purpose. Uh, my dad would speak really terrible things over me as a kid. And so I believed those things and internalized that. And by the time I was 12, I was really um, at the end of my rope mentally. I was um, suicidal. I had um, panic attacks multiple times a day, every day at school. Um, and that situation was just bringing me closer and closer to a point of no return. And it was in that environment that my good fundamentalist Baptist neighbors uh, sauntered their way down the street, knocked on my door and said, hey, why don't you come to church with us? Um, and they went to church in Baltimore City. And as a young boy in this trailer park, I was like, anything to get me out of this trailer and take me into the city sounds really mm -hmm. fun. So I started going to church. And in that environment, I discovered two things immediately. One, a community of people that were excited to see me. Um, that was rare for me, but to walk into an environment where people were genuinely glad that I was there, um, mm -hmm. I felt that in this Baptist church. And then I heard a message from the preacher about a God who could be a better earthly parent than my parents could ever be, and a God who loved me and could redeem whatever circumstances I was walking through and going through. 
and that message was healing to my young soul. And so mm. when it came time for the altar call, I gave my life to Christ and I, I can't explain it other than I experienced what people talk about when they're being born again. I, I encountered God in a really powerful, tangible way that breathes hope into my soul. And like a lot of kids who get converted at a young age, um, I became zealous overnight. And within four months of being saved, I felt called to be a pastor and became a street preacher and spent the rest of my childhood studying scripture and preaching and leading Bible studies and being in church every time I could. And it really did save my life in a very tangible way. Um, and it gave hope to my soul in a really tangible way as well. Yeah. And so you graduated high school and then you went to Moody Bible Institute, is that correct? Yes. So I left the Baptist church in high school, ended up at a large multicultural evangelical church. And the pastor there basically, um, he became my mentor. And he went to Moody Bible Institute and said, Brandon, if you go to Moody, uh, the church will basically pay for it for you. So uh, uh, I went off to Moody thinking it was more of a liberal school. Um, than my fundamentalist church. Uh, everybody at my fundamentalist church went to Bob Jones University, if you know anything about that. Yep. So Moody was definitely a, a liberal uh, step away from Bob Jones for me. <laughs> okay. So, so I guess just going back to your conversion um, for a couple minutes, you, you said you really felt um, the presence of God. You really felt... Uh, born again, this conversion was really powerful to you. Even though you changed uh, as a Christian and as a person, do you still look back at that conversion and, and that feeling and that relationship uh, that you have with God? Is, is that still similar? Totally. I think um, my relationship to God is different. Um, yeah. I believe I've been influenced. One of my mentors is a guy named Ken Wilbur, who has done a lot of work around something he calls integral theory, which basically just looks at the way human consciousness evolves. And so I've come to understand that the faith that I experienced at the age of 12, that was very visceral and tangible. Um, I was having visions of Jesus and like had a really deep relationship with God that I believe was authentic and real. But I think over the past decade, my faith has progressed as my consciousness has expanded, simply meaning I've had more experiences. I've seen more of the world. I've learned more. And so I no longer, it's very rare that I have that sort of visceral relationship with God that I had for that season of my life. Mm -hmm. But I have today what I would say is a more expansive view of who God is. Yeah. Um, and I experience God differently, but, um, Nonetheless, it's still as profound, and I would still say I have as close of a relationship to God as I did then, but it just looks very different. Sure, sure. Jason? Not to add to that. Okay. So, can you talk a little bit about your time at Moody and how that shaped you too, that education shaped you? Um, and, and you talk a lot, especially in the um, prologue, of, of your first book, Nomad, um, how you kind of went through uh, a, a real personal spiritual uh, change and had professors um, bringing you into meetings and, and telling you uh, you need to write good therapy and, and, and yeah. all that good stuff. Right? So, so can you talk a little bit about when you started there 
and what kind of brought you uh, to, to change? Yeah, when I went into Moody, um, one, I still believed that I was straight. I knew that I struggled with my sexuality, but I had pretty much buried that deep down and believed that um, if I could just get to Bible college, that I would find a wife and I would get married and it would all go away. Mm. And so I entered into Moody as a very conservative Christian. Um, if you guys are familiar with Mark Driscoll, he was yeah. my God at that time. Um, <laughs> I, I want it to be like him. And so hardcore conservative. So I fit right in when I first got to Moody and um, my first year I was kind of in that lane pretty hardcore. But the thing is, um, I always say Moody has the worst plan for a Bible college ever because Moody is really right in the heart of downtown Chicago. Hmm. And so I would go into class and I'd hear all this theology that was really conservative, stuff that I agreed with already. But then I'd literally walk out the doors of the campus and I was surrounded by this world-class city of diversity. Mm -hmm. And I would walk down to Holy Name Cathedral, the Catholic Church, which in class an hour before, I literally heard a professor talk about the Catholic Church as the great whore of Babylon and this mm -hmm. evil, um, false teaching institution. <laughs> but then we walk into Holy Name Cathedral and sit through a mass and experience the presence of God there. And, yeah. and my reality and my theology clashed. And then... Right. I would go down to Devon Street in Chicago, which is a largely Muslim population. And when the call to prayer came on, whereas some of my Bible college students like basically had a panic attack when that happened and said, this is demonic. I felt like it was mm. profoundly beautiful. And I felt the spirit of God in the midst of these faithful people stopping to pray. Mm -hmm. And that's really what began to chip away at my version of faith was that this experience of reality didn't align with what my theology said was true. And I really believe uh, if your theology and your reality come into conflict, reality should win. Your theology should be flexible enough <laughs> to change to reality. Um, mm. And so I started unwisely, but I, would, I don't regret it. I started blogging and podcasting about my experiences. Mm -hmm. And uh, little did I know, my college didn't really appreciate that very much. And... I started getting called into meetings in the dean's office where they would basically question me on my orthodoxy mm -hmm. and say, why are you talking to X, whatever this theologian's name is? Um, they're a heretic and you should be separating from them. And I kept saying, well, isn't the point of our faith to be open and exploring? Didn't Jesus interact with people that were on the mm -hmm. other side of the spectrum than he was? Sure. And if, if we have the truth, why are we afraid? Um, and really that pushback from my college, that fear that I received from the Moody faculty and students propelled me more into a more progressive version of Christianity simply because mm -hmm. that version of faith that's rooted in fear doesn't look like the faith I saw revealed in Jesus. Right. And right. I, was, I felt like I was on Jesus' side, to sound mm -hmm. arrogant about it, but I felt mm -hmm. like I was more aligned with God mm -hmm. than they were. So, yeah. So, Chicago as a city definitely influenced you. Did any exegetical work um, on the New Testament, reading Jesus's words, you know, as, as yeah. an adult, um, as opposed to right, a 12 year old who's looking for community, did that kind of shape change in you as well? Yeah, the reality is most Protestants are not Jesus followers. They are Paul followers. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that in... Bible. Now you're speaking my language, Brandon. Right. 
<laughs> because the, the truth is, I didn't know the Gospels. I never read the Gospels. The Gospels mm-hmm. were fairly irrelevant in my churches growing up and in Bible college. And so I started actually interacting and interviewing people like Brian McLaren and even people like N.T. Mm-hmm. Wright, who Moody thought mm-hmm. were heretics. Yeah. And they had this better emphasis uh, on the red letters of Jesus. And so they drew me into yeah. reading red letters of Jesus. And when you get into that, you start seeing, first of all, Jesus and Paul, and this is controversial in and of itself, I think they have fundamentally different theologies. I, I think they understand the gospel differently. Yeah. Um, and I started wondering, well, if Jesus is the incarnation of God as we believe, then why are we so aligned with this first century guy named Paul who never met Jesus, right. who was far removed from Jesus in many ways? Mm-hmm. Um, and when you start going down that rabbit hole, um, I think I'll be as bold to say, I think conservative theology has a really hard time standing up because it's rooted on the writings of the apostles, not on the teachings of Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. What led you to believe that Jesus and Paul have fundamental uh, disagreements in their theology? Um, well, I think Jesus articulates the gospel one way and Paul does completely different. Jesus says mm-hmm. in Mark chapter one, it says he went throughout the Galilee proclaiming the gospel and saying, and then it literally gives a quote. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the good news. So according to the gospel writer, that's the gospel that Jesus preached. Yeah. And then you get over to Paul and Paul's talking about the gospel as um, Christ crucified, died, and risen again. Right. And there's lots of theological roundabout ways that people try to justify that difference and say that they're actually saying the same thing. But I don't think you can say that the kingdom of God is at hand and Jesus crucified are the same message. Mm-hmm. And I began to be more compelled about what believing and living into this kingdom would do for me and my life and our world Here, than right. what believing that Jesus died 2,000 years ago yeah. it has different effects fundamentally on people if you believe one gospel over the other. And I think so too. Yeah. So you think that maybe faith is the way we express ourselves in the world? So it's maybe not a set of propositions, but the way we live into the world and uh, express that faith that we have in Jesus. Yeah, so there's, uh, this is pertinent because I was studying this last night, actually. There's a scholar, Matthew Bates, who just released a book, um, called Salvation by Allegiance Alone, where he argues that the word pistus in the Bible, which is translated faith, is actually better translated allegiance. And that seems to square with the Jesus gospel more than um, the way Paul's been traditionally interpreted. I think we're saved by, and this does sound very Catholic, uh, I think we're saved by allegiance. I'm already converting you. This is good. Yeah, I'm ready. Between you and Father Jim Martin, I'm I'm almost uh, I like Jim Martin. Yeah. yeah, but the gospel of Jesus is submit to this way of living and start building this kingdom in your own life and your own social structures. Uh, whereas the gospel, according to Paul, seems to be more about, at least as it's been interpreted, believing in this transaction that happened 2,000 years ago for your future benefit. And that's just not very compelling to me anymore. And that theology has won out, at least. Yep in pro- American Protestant Christianity, right? Because it's easier. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a transaction. Yeah, I mean, it, 
it's funny because I think when Constantine got involved and not, not just yeah. we use Constantine as a scapegoat, but all the things surrounding <laughs> that circumstance, um, I think it just became easier to, it's easier to sell a belief system than it is if we take Christianity seriously, it threatens every political system, every empire, every institution, every organization. As I say in the gospel, it's everything. Yeah, it's about the deconstruction of patriarchy, which is yeah. everything Christianity is and has always <laughs> been. So yeah. it's problematic. So how do you reconcile that um, as, as a Christian leader, as someone who leads a church, stands up, and gives the word um, every week. Um, how do you balance that tension? Yeah, um, I think that, I don't think institution and hierarchy is fundamentally bad. I think that's a, a mistake of postmodern liberals. Um, we generally are afraid of, we, we advocate for a flat structure. I don't think one that works in reality and two, I don't think it's necessary. I think institutions can be helpful, but and I think Jesus, he belonged to a synagogue. He practiced his faith in a synagogue. I think Christianity has more to do with the social movement um, than it does with the particular religious expression. And what I mean by that is throughout the first few centuries of Christianity, there were people who basically still practiced Judaism, but yeah. had this Christian understanding of the world and how they were supposed to live in it. Mm -hmm. And I know today, and this it's legitimate. I think I know people who are Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists who also take a Christian way of living in the world, but have a different way of uh, embracing their spirituality. Even in my own church, I have um, one particular couple that's a Christian and a Muslim, but they both come to our church and try mm -hmm. to follow the way of Jesus. Yeah. And they're Jesus followers. Right. right. So there's, there's a differentiation between what it means to have allegiance to the King uh, Jesus and what it means to express your faith in a particular religious or cultural expression. Mm. Um, and so what I do on Sundays is I create a religious experience for people who want to have an evangelical type worship experience. Mm -hmm. But that, that experience is irrelevant uh, in a sense to the message of the gospel that I'm proclaiming. Right. The message of the gospel is more versatile. It can go to any other culture or context. But for me, the evangelical expression of worship works really well. It does connect me to God. And so that's what I do on Sundays. And we invite people who like that expression to come and do that. But yeah. um, that's kind of separate from the gospel itself. Sure. Yeah, no, you know, I often wonder when in Christianity, at least, and maybe in Protestant Christianity, where we moved away from following Jesus and, and it moved to getting to heaven. And it was, everything was about the time to come rather than right here and now. And I remember Jesus yeah. talking about caring for the poor, caring for those who are on the margins, and bringing those people into the, the wedding feast, you know, throw, yeah. throw a banquet. Yeah. The people that didn't want to come weren't, weren't the people that, weren't the religious folks. It was the people that were blind and lame um, and that weren't, um, you know, being engaged in the world. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think that's the Funny enough, I think that's one of the things that the Protestant church has really gone off the rails with. I mean, it's not a unique thing that I'm saying, but that pushback against the workspace salvation of the Catholic church, I, I don't think the earliest reformers actually took it as far as some of their uh, people who came after them did. And yeah, I'll leave that there. <laughs> I don't want to keep like that. Jesus and Paul problem. 
yeah. Right? So, so there's someone that's saying something true and then it gets taken out of context and it gets taken further and that message kind of gets diluted. Right. Although I do think Paul is completely problematic and I'm always, uh, I have a friend, Eric Smith, who you should definitely interview as well. I do too. Yeah. And this is, yeah, yeah. There's a new book <laughs> called Paul the Progressive that tries to redeem Paul and I think it's a great effort and I think there's some legitimate points. But I actually say very proudly that I identify with James uh, over Paul okay. any day. Yes. Uh, James I'm grew up James with too. Jesus. Right, James knew Jesus intimately, uh, so it seems to me that he probably has a better grasp of what a Christian life should look like than Paul did. But sure. it seems to me Paul hijacked the Jesus movement from James. Don't get me on this conspiracy theory because I have a deep theory. <laughs> I'm going to say this, and then your listeners will all call me heretic and never come back. But um, oh, good. Okay. <laughs> I think it's. I don't. I don't know how legitimate this is. This is just a theory. But there is a theory out there in that's emerging in scholarly works that would say that Paul hijacked the Christian movement as a way to undermine the movement of Jesus intentionally. You have Paul being this anti-Christ dude in the beginning, who's persecuting and killing yeah. Christians. Yeah. What yeah. better way to end the subversive social movement that Jesus started than to become a leader in it and hmm. change it up? Um, and so there is this interesting line of uh, thinking that says Paul actually theologized um, the early Christian movement in order to dilute the social um, pervasiveness that it was having. Um, I don't think that's completely legitimate, but I also think there's probably some seeds of truth, even subconsciously, to Paul making it more about a belief system and a, a big structure of mm -hmm. ideology rather than the mm -hmm. ground level social movement that James and even Peter seem to understand it to be. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I don't want to throw Paul out entirely. I'm not going to yeah, throw yeah. him <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, so I, I think, you know, there's a lot of problems in Paul, like you, you've mentioned here. Uh, but I think the ethical trajectory that Paul has, if you take it to its logical conclusion, it gets us to where we want to be. Of course, yeah. they're just, he's human, right? He's making mistakes. And I'm okay yeah. saying that, you know, that he wasn't, he wasn't perfect. I think the spirit of God was working through him, but he still had, still a first century Jew. Yeah. Who was very religious and had some hangups that he never yeah. was able to fully work through in his own writings. Totally. And I agree with you. So as much as I like to trash on Paul, um, <laughs> I actually, I prefer the writing of Paul, Paul to the gospel. Um, <laughs> I think Paul, whoever actually wrote the letters, um, did a really great job in articulating what would be very popular to a Western style of philosophy. And so like mm -hmm. reading the book of Romans is still one of my favorite things to do and reading Colossians and Philippians, just Paul's way of articulating um, what, when he does get to good ethics and practice, it mm -hmm. reads really well, it's very compelling. Um, yeah. Whereas Jesus is often cryptic and takes a lot of thinking and it's hard to understand sometimes. Um, so. I like Paul. I just think, like you said, um, this, my hardcore pushback is more in my Protestant context to say, listen, guys, we have lifted up Paul for 500 years, way more than Paul should be lifted up. And why not uh, focus a little bit more on Jesus and those who actually walked with Jesus, Peter and James? Yeah. yeah. So, Wittel, do you have anything more to say about the... Jesus Paul. Oh, the Jesus Paul dynamic? <laughs> no, I think we can move on from Jesus and Paul. Okay. So we can do more exegesis. Um, and I know you had a few, a few mm -hmm. questions for Brandon, right? Um, 
But I, I do just want to talk about after you graduated from Moody yeah. and that was a kind of a difficult time, uh, but a formative time for you. Is that right? You were uh, writing Nomad, um, you went back home and were kind of figuring out if you were going to put yourself out there and become a leading Christian activist, particularly for LGBTQ um, uh, rights. Talk a little bit about that time, um, yeah. how that formed you, uh, and what the process was like, um, you know, writing your first book and then having it rejected for standing yeah. up for what was right. Yeah. So. Um, at Moody, towards the end of my time at Moody, I had come out to a couple of professors that struggling with my sexuality. Mm -hmm. They really, um, uh, they eventually outed me to the faculty. I had to do a year of reparative therapy. And by the time I left Moody, I went home to DC and just felt dejected. And um, mm -hmm. if, if that's what Christianity was, what I experienced at Moody, um, I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a part of it. And so I went back yeah. to DC and I had no clue where I was gonna go, what I was gonna do. Um, and really, it sounds crazy, but it really is out of nowhere. I got two job offers, one from the Log Cabin Republicans um, and one from a George Soros far left political think tank. And, <laughs> a little different. And I, had, I had no political experience. Like, I can't tell you why this happened. It just happened. Um, and I accepted both of those jobs. Um, and one of them was to start an organization called Evangelicals for Marriage Equality. Mm -hmm. And the argument we were making publicly was evangelicals don't have to theologically agree with homosexuality, but everyone should agree on the civil rights of LGBT people to get married. Sure. And so our whole point was they hired me to be the straight, white, evangelical, young theologian saying, hey, I might not agree with homosexuality <laughs> biblically, but I do agree with it politically. Yeah. Um, and during that week, I came out in Time Magazine, um, at, we launched the organization there, and immediately the Southern Baptist Convention the next day took out a full page op-ed in Time condemning our organization and me. Um, and again, it was just this period of a lot of rejection from this world that I believed I was gonna be a leader in, um, mm -hmm. simply because I had a different political perspective than them, not even a matter of orthodoxy, I believed a more liberal political thing. Um, then, uh, so re reporters started digging around in my personal life, uh, as they do when you step into the public light like that, politically especially. Mm -hmm. um, and they found out that I had struggled with my sexuality. And so, uh, essentially, during that period of life, two things happened. My book deal was signed with a conservative publisher, mm -hmm. and they had seen me rise publicly as this voice for marriage equality. And they wrote me a letter and said, essentially, if you don't condemn mar gay marriage publicly, we can't publish your book. Um, at the same time, Time Magazine reached out and said, we know that you're not straight and we want to write about that. So I had these two competing things happening. Mm -hmm. um, times, I, I told the publisher that I couldn't condemn gay marriage, that I wasn't there with them ideologically. And so they okay. said, your book deal is canceled. And then... When I told Time Magazine that, they said, okay, well, that's going to be the story we're going to write now. And in that story, we're going to say that you're gay. So you better go ahead and come out to your friends and your family because the story is going to come out in a couple weeks. I said, okay, fine. 
Um, the next morning, Time Magazine published that article. I had not talked to my friends or family oh, about anything. Um, and so the headline is, Young Evangelical Leader Loses Book Deal After Coming Out. Um, and mm. I was out it. Um, for those three days, it was pretty traumatic. But mm. um, honestly, looking back, I'm incredibly grateful because it ripped the Band-Aid off super quickly. Um, mm. And I was out to everyone, my friends, my family, my co uh, coworkers. They all found out online, and I never had to have those awkward conversations with anyone. Um, <laughs> And not to be crass, but man, my dating life became really good in Washington, <laughs> D.C. Um, so it was a net benefit at the end of the day. But after that experience, I was kind of forced into this world of LGBT activism that I never thought I would be yeah. in. Yeah. Um, but it really has shaped my life and my theology ever since. And last thing I'll say, in that season, I also discovered uh, out of the woodwork, so to speak, all these liberal Christians started supporting me. And I discovered that there was a different way to be Christian um, mm -hmm. that I just wasn't very aware of or interested in as an evangelical. Mm -hmm. And having that world surround me, that's what started changing my theology in a really deep way and helping me see that I could have a future in the church still. Yeah, yeah. So for the last 10 minutes, let's talk about uh, your dating life in D.C. With <laughs> <laughs> love. Uh, no. So, so after that, how soon did you go on to receive a Master of Theological Studies? I stayed around in D.C. doing some political faith work for two years. Um, and then I went off to ILIF um, and yeah. did a two-year program that just mm -hmm. focused. I focused my entire time there on studying essentially first century sexuality and gender in okay. uh, the Greco-Roman world. Mm -hmm. And ILIF was an incredible experience. It was an interfaith seminary. Um, yeah. So I was in school with Muslims and Wiccans and all of that good fun mm -hmm. that shaped me in a new way. Um, and then when I graduated ILIF, I was actually going to move back to DC and take a job, um, Lord willing, in the White House. I had a job offer oh. the White House Office of Faith with Hillary Clinton. Oh. Um, and oh. This and was in she lost. 2016. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And so when Clinton lost the election, my hope of having that dream job went out the window. And mm -hmm. I basically said, well, why not try to be a pastor? That was my calling back in the day. Let's see if it worked out. And my mm -hmm. friend had started a church here in San Diego that needed a pastor. And I came out here and have been doing that for the last two years. And it's been an incredible experience. So yeah. That's amazing. So you, uh, would you consider yourself still evangelical? I know you've talked about being evangelical. Would you use that label, maybe? Uh, that's a hard one for me because I spent so much of my short career thus far was dedicated to reclaiming evangelical. I think the word, honestly, is hopelessly lost um, at this point. <laughs> um, but I think if... By evangelical, we're talking about a style of Christianity. Sure. I think I identify with that style. I had my okay. Anglican Catholic period, um, and I'm kind of back to worship and raise your hands yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. So That is not very Catholic. <laughs> no. <laughs> we're working on it. Brenda, I'd, lo I'd love to talk to you and ask you a little bit about um, what you talked about in the gospel uh, of inclusion. It's um, kind of talking about the Spirit's move and kind of revelation is pushing forward some of those those messages of inclusion because as a pentecostal i think that the message of the gospel is much more inclusive the spirit of god actually wants to invite many more people 
that we don't necessarily want to invite if you're evangelical, you come from a more conservative background. So can you touch on a little bit of that, how you came to that conclusion? Yeah, this is where I think the Pentecostal, the Orthodox, and the Catholic Church have the upper hand against um, the rest of Protestant Christianity because they've always left open the possibility that the Spirit of God could bring a fresh word. And that's been so core to Christianity. I, my whole argument is based on what Jesus himself said before he ascended into heaven. He said, I have so much more to teach you, more than you can now bear. Therefore, I'll send you the Spirit. And the Spirit's job is to lead you into all the truth. And when I realized that statement and I thought about its implications, if Jesus said, there's more to teach you and the spirit will lead you into all truth after I leave, mm -hmm. then that means one, all the truth hasn't been revealed. And two, the spirit of God is still at work in the church and in the world. Therefore, it leads me to believe that there's more truth still to be revealed even to this day. Whereas most Protestants would say, uh, when the canon was closed, the spirit stopped speaking, which is, a ridiculous theological argument to make. Yeah. Um, so I've, I would articulate like so many other Christians that the abolitionist movement, for instance, the yeah. scripture does not clearly make a case for the abolition of slavery. It no. simply is not there. But mm -hmm. I believe it points in a direction and I believe that the spirit moved in the hearts of the abolitionists to see the direction from severe oppression in the Old Testament to less oppression in the New Testament mm -hmm. to make the abolitionists believe actually it's not God's will at all that people should be enslaved. Mm -hmm. And they spoke up and acted up. And that's happened in so many, almost every social movement has been led by a group of people who saw the trajectory of the scriptural tradition and mm -hmm. said, I think God is calling us to go beyond what the scripture says, but in the same direction. And so my case for LGBT inclusion is simply that, that no, I don't think the Bible is affirming of LGBT people in and of itself, mm -hmm. but I think it points us in the direction of inclusion. And if we take it to its logical conclusion, then we have to see that God's vision is for all people, all races, all sexualities, all genders yeah. to be equally included in the kingdom. Yeah, and as I was reading your book and hearing that argument being fleshed out, I had an ethics professor undergrad. It was a, you know, it's a Christian college, and we're talking about and somewhat Christian ethics. And he made this argument that the Bible doesn't necessarily condemn some of these things, or it does condemn these things, uh, or it doesn't condemn certain things, but the ethical movement from the Old Testament to the New Testament leads us to somewhere else, and we need to take that ethical trajectory to its logical conclusion. And as I was kind of an undergrad, I'm, I'm conservative, right? You're Pentecostal. <laughs> You're obviously yeah. conservative. And I had to go through my own deconstructive process and pull those things apart. I realized if we believe in the image of God, people being made in the image of God, we have to include everybody. Yeah. Because right now we're marginalizing, we're actually wounding what God has created to, be, to bring glory to him. So I think, you know, reading your argument and kind of seeing what you're doing with some of the historical background stuff that I thought was incredibly interesting, specifically about patriarchy, uh, which I'd love for you to touch on if you have a moment. Uh, yeah. Here at the end, you know, really it led kind of some of where I was thinking about some of these questions. I think sums it up in a really nice way for a lot of people. Well, thank you. Yeah. And I'll, here's my 60-second uh, summary of my patriarchy argument. <laughs> it's probably the most complex theological argument I've ever made, so let's see if I can uh, actually do this. But um, really, patriarchy uh, is not... Nowhere in Scripture does patriarchy come from God. Patriarchy emerges from human culture. Anthropologists know this, and theologians have articulated this for literally thousands of years. Patriarchy being... 
that there's a certain kind of male that dominates and is superior to the rest of society. That belief has been present in societies for thousands of years. It's definitely in scripture, but it doesn't originate from the mouth of God ever. It's just kind of social structure that's there. Um, as you see Genesis to Revelation, there is a consistent deconstruction and challenging of patriarchal norms. Whether it's in the Old Testament, when you see women like Deborah become a judge, um, that is a subversion of all of the cultural expectations, but that's something that God does. God calls her, appoints her, and she becomes a judge, and that subverts cultural standards. By the time you get to Jesus, Jesus himself is a subversion of patriarchy because it was rare for a Jewish teacher to be single, uh, you would have either been a eunuch or you would have been an outsider to the community usually. So Jesus, mm -hmm. just in his nature of being a single teacher, is challenging the cultural norms of what a Greco-Roman first century Jewish man should look like. Mm -hmm. But then he also goes about and starts talking to women and appointing women as leaders. Whether or not you believe they were apostles or not is irrelevant. He appoints women to be leaders in the early church. That's uncontested. Absolutely. And then by the time you get to Paul, the way even he talks about women, even though we would find a lot of his uh, prohibitions about women um, repugnant today, uh, yeah. they were cultural elevations um, that women could at least be in the sanctuary with men during worship. Mm. It was a big challenge to the way culture would have structured worship yeah. environments in first century Judaism. And um, I think my biggest argument, the one that I like the most, and it's one that is the biggest singer and people have a hard time with is I think the crucifixion itself is a clear articulation from God of where patriarchy leads to us to mm -hmm. and the subversion of patriarchy. And this is the summary of that real quick. Um, and in the Greco-Roman world, penetration of any kind was seen as emasculating for a man to be penetrated sexually or otherwise by another man was to be seen to give up your social status as a man in society. Mm -hmm. And so crucifixion was articulated by the Greco-Roman world. Uh, the reason they used it was because it was to emasculate the criminal first by penetrating them with nails, and then they would literally suffer and die. So it was this twofold excruciating process. One, you were losing your dignity and status as a male in society and then you are suffering and dying on a cross. And there is plenty of uh, ar articles and arguments from the first century that I include in the book that talk mm -hmm. about this is how the Greco-Roman people saw crucifixion. Mm -hmm. So if Christian theology tells us Jesus goes to the cross willingly, he takes on emasculization, uh, emas I always get that word wrong, but emascul this emasculated <laughs> act, he willfully undergoes it and in that penetration process, Jesus, in the mind of first century Greco-Roman people, becomes feminine on the cross. A crucified man is no longer a man. They are feminine. Mm. Then Jesus dies. And the resurrection, we read in the book of Revelation, that the lamb is forever pierced. Mm. Jesus forever, as a resurrected Christ, remains with the marks of penetration. And that image of the lamb that is slain, that image of the resurrected Christ that Thomas touches, that still has holes in his hand, that's an emasculated image. People would actually say that's a, a gender neutral image. Christ is no longer masculine nor feminine. He stands in between being both a biological male, but somebody who has been penetrated. Um, and if that's the image that we see in eternity in the book of Revelation, that you have this gender neutral incarnation of God, mm -hmm. surrounded by every nation, tribe, color, class, culture, 
that's, that's the ultimate image of inclusion and the deconstruction of systems of patriarchy and domination and favoritism, mm -hmm. that we see that God is calling us in himself and in this kingdom that God's creating to this reality where we get rid of these hierarchies based on identity and we all stand united in the one image of our one God, one spirit. Um, and I don't know if that's uh, a a good way to articulate it, but that's my best shot in five minutes. So, uh, well, thank you so much. That was, I think that was a great summary of what you talked about in the book. And for anybody that's curious about what he just talked about, go pick up his book, The Gospel of Inclusion. Where, where else can we uh, read some of your work? Where are you doing some of this uh, publicly? The place that I pour everything is my website, brandonrobertson.com. Uh, everything, books, articles, podcasts, it's all there. So. Great. And we can follow you where on social media? I'm mainly on Twitter and Instagram, both at uh, Twitter is at Brandon JR, and then uh, Instagram is Brandon Robertson. So. Okay, so I have one more question for you. Yeah. Something I find um, so great about your work and your spirituality is how grounded you are in your own tradition but at the same time, how curious and willing and excited you are um, to be a part of other traditions mm -hmm. and explore others as well. Um, you have a quote from your first book, the deeper I grow in my own faith as a Christian, the greater my desire to explore. Can, can you talk a little bit about being, you know, as called a wanderer, uh, yeah. spiritually and, just, just how that's continued um, yeah. spiritual journey. I think the single most big, the biggest lesson I've learned spiritually in my 10 years of being a Christian is, First um, John says, there is no fear in love for perfect, or there's no fear in God for perfect love casts out all fear, and I'm butchering it. God is love, and perfect <laughs> love casts out all fear. So if, if we believe God is love, and love and fear are... Uh, opposites according to scripture mm -hmm. then whenever there's fear showing up I understand that to be a place where God is not or at least we're separating ourselves from God mm -hmm. so as soon as I began to believe that that whenever I had fear um, I was not acting from a, a place that was rooted in God I was free to explore and hold on I'm gonna pop. can you all hear the sirens yeah yeah give me a second Cool. Um, okay. So whenever fear is present, I know that I'm not moving from a place where God is at. And therefore, I, f I feel free to explore and to be curious because one, I know that we're all just grasping at this infinite thing that none of us can be sure about. And so we're all just giving it our best shot. C.S. Lewis has a great poem called The Footnote to All Prayer that really sums us up. So I, you should read that if you're interested. But my own faith today looks like I read different religious texts all the time. I mm. end up in different faith communities. Yesterday I was in a quasi-pagan Buddhist um, meditation class. Um, wow. I do that because I think anywhere that people are searching for God, there is something to be gained. And I am not afraid of being wrong. I'm not afraid of being attacked by Satan. Like that stuff is not part of my faith anymore because mm -hmm. I believe that we live in God. In God, we live and move and have our being. God mm -hmm. is love and fear has no place in this reality. Mm -hmm. And so 
I just want to encourage people, if you find yourself being afraid to question, afraid to explore, afraid to visit a religious tradition or read a text, that fear is not from God. Uh, you have nothing to be afraid of. Um, mm. And God is found in my life in all of the unexpected places. I find God more often outside of Christian context than I do within Christian context. Mm -hmm. And I think that's mm -hmm. as biblical as it comes. I think that's what Jesus' yeah. experience was as well. So Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, friend. And so before we let you go, what we do with all our guests, let's give you the last word. If there's anything um, we didn't touch on or um, anything we didn't ask in the midst of the conversation, um, just anything you want to say uh, before we go. I think you got me in that last question to say the last thing that I always want to say. And yeah. I, again, I'll just reiterate it one more time, though. It's let's be curious. Let's, let's continue to stand with eyes wide open to God and to reality and to life and to not be afraid to change our beliefs. Your beliefs, again, uh, C.S. Lewis says, they're un arrows unskillfully aimed. We're all shooting at this target that we call God and we're all falling short. Mm -hmm. So let's just have fun with this faith. Like, let's not take it so seriously because none of us have this right and we're all going to be real surprised when we do cross over <laughs> and get to stand before god yeah so just have fun explore enjoy be curious and for god's sakes stop being afraid there's so much to be afraid of in the world sure. don't make your faith about fear thank, thank you so, so much for coming on brendan yeah this has been wonderful and on that note let's all stay curious together thank you so much yes. thank you both for articulating these conversations so well on this podcast we appreciate it. Yes. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of I Think You're Wrong. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to rate and review us while you're there. Also, be sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram at I Think You're Wrong Pod. Also on Twitter at You're Wrong underscore pod.